0: is brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. In an effort to increase the availability and accessibility of UD expertise to Delaware's P-12 educators, leaders, and policy influencers, we have invited faculty members from the University of Delaware's nine colleges to share their research. We hope you enjoy today's critical conversation and consider ways you might be able to leverage relevant research and UD expertise to advance policy and transform practice.
1: My name is Liz Farley-Ripple. I'm the director of the Partnership for Public Education and also serve as a faculty member in the School of Education. I'll be the host for today's episode where we are joined by Dr. Lauren Bales, assistant professor of education in the University of Delaware's College of Education and Human Development. Dr. Bales' research looks at the political efficacy of educational stakeholders and the organizational and political contexts which support democratic participation in school policy systems. Her recent work looks at relations among political efficacy, demographic characteristics of teachers and leaders, and organizational characteristics such as collaboration. Today, we've invited her to speak a bit about a recent project she's been working on, which focuses on disciplinary inequities in schools. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bales. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. We are too. So we have featured on our podcast previously some conversations about school discipline, specifically policing in schools. But this is a very different take on school discipline. So would you mind giving us some background on thinking about disciplinary inequities in schools? I mean, we hear things about disproportionality, and you know, as I mentioned, more recently policing in schools. But could you tell us more about disciplinary inequities in particular, and how there are differences in how children experience discipline in schools?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the the framing quotes that I think helps uh, situate this conversation is from the Century Foundation, and they say that school discipline without racial equality is discrimination, and that goes for many different kinds of identities that our students bring to school, whether that's um, being LGBT, part of the LGBTQ uh, community, whether it's um, a gender identity, whether it's just being a girl in school, uh, sometimes offers you a differential experience of school discipline. And so there are a couple of facts that I think really, um, point to or indicate just how serious this is. So the first one is that Black students who in the 2015-2016 school year made up about 15% of all students were about 31% of all the students arrested or referred for, uh, to police for in-school behavior. And that speaks to your prior conversations about policing in schools. We also know that 22% of fourth grade students who are Black um, cite that they have missed at least three days of school. Uh, As as compared to about 19% of white students. So what we can see is very, very early on, uh, black students in particular report a different kind of school discipline experience than do their white peers. And this really is exacerbated as students get older. And then you know you add into that, uh, particularly students of color face a lot of assumptions about who they are and what they are going to do or how they are going to behave based on racial stereotypes and implicit biases. Um, And so in a number of things like dress codes and codes of conduct, we still have kind of normative whiteness baked into the code of conduct for students. So when those codes, dress codes, codes of conduct suggest things like professional dress or professional hairstyles. We find that Black students in particular, but students um, of many different demographics are punished because their natural hair is often not perceived as professional. And so they might receive consequences as severe as being removed from school for the texture of their hair. Um, So so I think what becomes very clear very quickly uh, is that minoritized students of all kinds, whether they're students of color, queer students or, or girls, Um, they are going to have a really different experience of school discipline than their white, straight, male counterparts. So
1: that's really fascinating. And I appreciate having specific examples in your comments that really helps bring the issue to life for our audience. And I'd also like to think about that from a policy perspective. Are there policies at the school or regional or national level that contribute to these disparities?
0: I think there are. I can think of three specific categories. One is just the ways in which we resource schools. So many schools are still funded according to property taxes. Um, And so when we have neighborhoods that experience poverty or neighborhoods that experience some degree of lack of resource, we also have that represented in our schools. Um, This is also evident in the ways in which we think about special education students. So those resource uh, absences translate to not providing students who have special needs with the resources, time, instructional quality that they sometimes need. And so it becomes easier to measure compliance than learning. Um, And so when non-compliance is uh, the thing that we can look at and see as a violation of some kind of disciplinary code, we have, you know, special ed students who might be removed from school. And then you layer into this things like the ways in which Black students in particular are assigned to special education services at disproportionate rates. So there might be a mismatch between a student and their education setting. And again, looking only to compliance or looking primarily to compliance results in a number of these really harsh consequences that can be avoided with appropriate resources in our schools. The other one, and I know you've talked about this, so your audience is likely familiar, but the ways in which we think about safety and policing in schools, I know this is an ongoing conversation in many of our districts in Delaware right now, and I think we have to be very honest with ourselves about the kinds of schools that are likely to have armed police walking the halls. I know when I was a middle school teacher in Brooklyn, New York, we had an armed police officer um, as a school resource officer uh, and we were a K to eight school. So we were a hundred percent black school. And so as early as kindergarten, our students were accustomed to seeing a police officer with a gun in their school. And I think this raises questions about who our schools have decided are unsafe in terms of students. And then finally, sort of boiling down to the actual building level, Student codes of conduct can be really, really broad. Um, and they can allow a lot of discretion for the faculty, whether that's a teacher, or an assistant principal, or a dean of some kind, or a principal, to make decisions about how consequences are allocated to students. And professional discretion can be a really, really good thing. But it has to be a good thing when it's compared, or sorry, it works in conjunction with um, the expertise of the faculty. So they have to know their students, know their context, know their needs and also be self-aware enough to recognize their own implicit biases and counter them. I mean, we have in the language of the professional standards for education leadership, dismantling these kinds of systems. And so thinking about like, what does it mean even in the language of our student codes of conduct to begin to dismantle these systems of oppression and differential experience of school discipline?
1: That's really helpful. I think that policy perspective sheds important light on These disciplinary issues and how they may vary across different contexts. As you know, I really like to have examples and I know our audience also benefits from having specific examples. So could you elaborate on a couple of those disciplinary issues that tend to promote inequity or have inequitable
0: consequences for students? Sure. So I can think of two and these kind of range from what we might consider kind of minor infractions to very major infractions. So the first, and I know I've talked about this a couple of times, but dress codes are a major reason that girls are not just given consequences in school, but removed from school. And so when we think about um, black girls in particular who receive this as a consequence, a lot of it goes to or speaks to the ways in which they are perceived by their largely white teachers um, that their conversations in schools are perceived as talking back or disruptive or obstinate um, at a much higher rate than their white peers. Um, and they're also oversexualized at a much younger age which is not a reason to receive school consequence it's just a, a fault of teacher perception, they might be removed from school for, for something about the way that they look or are perceived. The other thing, and I think this is, uh, you know, I, I mentioned these as sort of minor and major, but these are all very major um, and added to the experience of schooling that, that Black children and particularly Black girls already get this is, this is negligent, like we have to do something about this. Uh, and there are options available to us. The other one that I have seen a lot is um, speaking to that issue of how much discretion school faculty have. There are a number of codes of conduct in which there is an option to call the police. And I know we've talked about this a little bit, But the steps that lead up to calling the police are often not well enumerated. And this might be something related to sexual assault. It might be something related to um, the use of weapons on a school campus or bringing weapons to a school campus. Or it might be something like the student is perceived to be a harm to themselves or others. And there are very limited but probably appropriate times in which the police should be called to schools I, I, that is something we have to, to think about, but the steps that get us to that point, that get teachers to that point, or that get principals to that point should be very clearly enumerated. And that timeline might be consolidated over the course of a couple of minutes, but the things that we do before we invite armed police into our schools should be clear, should be sequential, and should be very carefully enumerated and understood by our faculty.
1: I think it's really important that you brought up the role of implicit bias and some of the assumptions that might feed into the disciplinary actions that occur in schools. How does implicit bias contribute to these inequities? Or could you just elaborate a bit on how you see that working?
0: Yeah, so one thing, and this is an area in which I'm still learning, but The ways in which schools have been designed and the assumptions around kind of good behavior, quote unquote, good behavior in schools or compliance in schools or professionalism in schools are calibrated around whiteness because that's primarily who our schools have been designed to serve well for a really long time. And so when we have students in schools who are not white and bring with them, you know, the assets that come from their families, their cultures, their traditions, The communities and neighborhoods, and they receive consequences for not adhering to a system that was never designed to serve them. It's perhaps not surprising that we see, uh, we see these consequences being meted out disproportionately to students of color to students who are minoritized in other ways um, and also just kind of a blind spot when it comes to fixing this um, that this seems insurmountable and really it's going to be about redesigning a system so that it is best suited for all kinds of different students and so i think this work really has to happen in the minds and hearts of, of school personnel, um, but it also has to happen in our policies. Like certainly we want people to be more aware of their own biases. We want them to be dismantling these systems, but there I mean, we can shape policies that are better and kinder and more compassionate and um, serve our students of color, our queer students um, and our girls better than the system currently does. Um, and so I think about, you know, my colleague, Janita Novice she talks about a lot Uh, equity as a pedagogical project that we are constantly learning whether that's in school or out of school and our schools are a particular place where we get to shape the experience of equity and the examples of equity for students, for faculty, for leaders Uh, and some of our students are are on the privileged end of that they they get the best of our schools and some of our students are really experience really severe and dire consequences of that.
1: Thank you for elaborating on that. I think it's important to center those equity issues and how implicit bias and systemic inequities play out in different aspects of schooling. So let's turn a little bit towards your work. How does your work on disciplinary inequities help schools address these issues?
0: Sure, so in my work in this area, I tend to work directly with schools. So uh, what I've done in this area is professional development or lead conference sessions or uh, opportunities for schools to meet in groups of their own personnel and learn from each other and strategize around these issues. So to their credit, the schools I have worked with are already thinking about this. They're already kind of cognizant. They've done some of this work, evaluating and interrogating their own biases. And I think what I can add to those conversations Conversations is some of that broader picture, how we got there. Um, so, you know, how is the lack of diversity in school leadership associated with who gets hired in terms of teachers? How is, you know, the disproportionate number of white teachers associated with who gets assigned to gifted and talented programs or who gets assigned to special education services? So when I lead professional development, I often start with those questions uh, and, and just kind of prompt our colleagues in schools to get to know themselves. Who are your leaders? What do they look like? Where do they come from? Who are your teachers? What do they look like? Where do they come from? Uh, Are they similar to your students? In what ways are they likely to understand your students well? And in what ways do they need to learn about your students and their context and their families? And then I think what I can offer is uh, help in looking at data. And often this is just counting, uh, which is really, uh, really helpful. So how many Black, Latinx, LGBTQ students or girls disproportionately experience consequences? And almost always, this is a little bit of a surprise, that there are just a few students who kind of get sorted in terms of experiencing a lot of school discipline. I think the follow up question to that is how much kind of discretion or variability is there in the way those consequences are applied? So you might have to dig really deeply into something like a teacher's referrals to remove a student from class. Um, Because it might be in some cases they have done a lot of things before they get to the point of removing a student. And it might be in some cases that was the first. Uh, the first resort was just getting a student out of class and then thinking about, you know, did those students look different? Were they behaving differently? Do they have different needs? Um, And how how did the teacher approach that situation? Same teacher, same classroom, different students, different uh, kind of leeway in the use of that consequence. So encouraging schools and, and personnel to think about this. And so finally, I think the the other question that I tend to ask is how does implementation of this strategy, say something like a dress code vary or what situations might cause students to have different experiences of a consequence associated with that policy. Um, So we tend to think about, you know, under what conditions does discretion serve a student? Do they sort of get more chances, more opportunities for uh, learning or or, uh, better pedagogy? And under what situations does flexibility or discretion harm a student? You know, does a teacher, use that tool of removing a student before trying to rectify that student's position in class. And so I think those are some of the ways in which uh, my conversations have been really productive with schools, especially, especially uh, here in Delaware and our, our local colleagues here.
1: It's great to hear about your work with schools, and I imagine you've had some very interesting conversations and aha moments when you talk to leaders and educators about their work. I'm wondering what specific strategies might our audience, who is largely educators or school policymakers, um, what strategies they might take to address some of these issues?
0: I think one thing is to look at what's being done nationally in in the research and in practice. So there are some schools and districts, and this has been documented in a, in a a good deal of the research where they've begun to implement policies that levy appropriate consequences when the time is right uh, but don't tend to result in disproportionality in school discipline so there are some some schools in DC that have done this there are some schools in Chicago um, and so th- like looking to those schools and seeing what are they doing well especially when they tend to serve a large proportion of minoritized students the other thing I would say is to engage the strategies that uh, that I've done with schools so can you just count how many times certain disciplinary consequences Consequences have been levied against students, whether that's school removal, classroom removal, suspensions, uh, using police in schools. And just seeing for how many of those students, uh, was that a white student, a black student, a Latinx student, or perhaps a LGBTQ student. And just seeing like, have, do we have a blind spot here when it comes to levying consequences? disproportionately uh, along any gender or racial identity. Uh, I think that's a really good place to start. And I think it it helps us to kind of tell the truth in schools about how we're using the consequences. The other thing, and this requires a great deal of trust and collaboration among the faculty. So this might not be a good fit for everyone, but to see who among your faculty is using what. So if you have you know, perhaps one or two teachers who use classroom or school removal a lot, perhaps they're not getting the support they need to do their best instruction with everyone in that classroom. So what does that mean in terms of supporting your faculty? Uh, And also perhaps helping your faculty to think critically and reflectively about how they're using the consequences available to them. And that could could be an issue of bandwidth. You know, this has been a challenging year for anyone in a school or classroom, Um, but it could be an issue of habits and defaults. Uh, And those are things that can be changed. And I think that's really hopeful news and really important news for our students and for faculty and schools.
1: So I think it's really important that you're drawing attention to the supports that teachers need, right? Because in my experience and probably in yours, teachers are doing the absolute best they can in their classrooms and they really want to see all students succeed. So it's not that these inequities come out of necessarily some ill intention, but oftentimes a need for more support or new ideas or different approaches that maybe they haven't had the opportunity to learn. Uh, And same goes for building leaders. So as a system, I think it's important that we consider how we can better meet those needs, provide more supports to teachers and leaders, and of course, provide more supports for our students. So that brings me to a larger question. We talked a bit about how these inequities show up for students or the disciplinary inequities in particular, but do these biases that play out in school discipline policies, have additional consequences for for schools, for students, for staff members? Um, What are some of those bigger picture consequences?
0: I think there are. um, And I I don't know if it's a consequence or just a related struggle in terms of diversity in schools. Um, So one thing that I have found in my research is just a profound lack of diversity when it comes to school leadership. Men make up 48% of all principals, despite being only about 21% of all teachers. They make up about 75% of all superintendents. So there's just, there's certainly gender disproportionality among school leadership. Um, and really, close to 80% of all teachers are white. And, and the pipeline gets whiter as we approach the highest levels of school leadership. Um, so when it's normalized that white men are significantly overrepresented in school leadership, relative to their representation in the teacher core, it should not be surprising to us that we see students of color not represented or not understood well among their teachers. Um, and so, when we see, you know, the disproportionate use of really severe discipline tactics, uh, we see girls opt out of advanced math classes. We see LGBTQ students sign themselves out of school because of bullying um, or just not feeling safe in school. Uh, these are these are all related. These are issues of um, the ways in which our, our teaching faculty are sorted uh, is very similar to the ways in which our minoritized students might feel the consequences of their school discipline.
1: Thank you for that. I think, I think your point ties together a lot of the issues we've been talking about on this podcast and that are happening in the larger discourse around equity and education. I think that really pulls those things together for our audience. Speaking of that audience, a lot of our audience are educators, leaders, school district members, school board members even, that may be interested in doing work in this area and taking up some of your suggestions. Where might they find additional resources, besides yourself, that they can use to support change in this area?
0: Yeah, of course. I think my colleagues, Drs. Roderick Carey and Janine Novaish, are doing truly exemplary work, not only in their research, but in their partnerships with schools around uh, climates for equity and restorative practices uh, and giving, as we mentioned earlier, teachers the supports they need to employ strategies other than punishment. Uh, there are a couple of researchers who have a longstanding record of outstanding, uh, very compelling research in this area. Uh, Russell Skiba, Mariella Arredondo, and Pedro Neguera have been doing this work for and leading this work for a very long time. Uh, Also, I'd recommend people visit my website. My colleague and friend, Dr. Amy Schreffer-Tarter, and I have been uh, involved in this work in a really long time. That's equitased.com. We have tools and resources and professional development opportunities there. There are two other things that have really shaped my thinking. One is the report from the National Women's Law Center, which is called Dress Coded. That's the report I referenced earlier that actually um, invited teenage girls, uh, teenage Black girls in D.C. to be part of authoring that report, and then a more recent book by Monique Morris uh, called Push Out, which deals specifically with the experience of Black and Latinx girls in schools. So those are, I think that's that's a really great place to start.
1: Thank you so much for sharing those resources, which we've linked below. We really appreciate you sharing your work and your ideas and strategies for improving the inequities in school discipline. We also know you've been doing great work on leadership and teacher retention. So we hope you'll come back and join us again soon. Thanks so much for being here today, Dr. Bales.
0: Thank you, it's been such a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Evidence for Education, brought to you by the University of Delaware Partnership for Public Education. We hope you join us for our next episode where we are joined by Dr. Alison Carpin and our conversation about the critical issue of food security in Delaware.
0: For more information about the work being done by the Partnership for Public Education, please visit our website at www.udell.edu. forward slash PPE.